1: at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that hunting and fishing is a part of who we are as humans. I mean, this goes back way, way before recorded history. People um, hunt and gather to survive. And to not have the opportunity to do that is, just seems unjust to me.
2: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors Podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. Today, I have a fun guest. His name is Rob Sand. He's the State Auditor of Iowa. He's also a big hunter. How you doing today, Rob?
1: I'm good, Aaron. Yourself?
2: I'm doing pretty good. I appreciate you joining. I think we have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. We'll just introduce you first. I describe Rob as a mover, shaker, father... Bo Hunter, former Assistant Attorney General and now State Auditor of Iowa. This is Rob Sand. And Rob, we always start uh, by asking folks what the heck they've been up to outside. Uh, Sure. This is the Outdoors Podcast, so tell us what you've been doing in the woods.
1: Uh, I was out today. uh, The the statewide bow season for Whitetail in Iowa ends January 10th, and I... uh, have taken three antlerless deer in the urban season uh, in Des Moines. Uh, it took a couple in shotgun season, and I still haven't tagged a buck, and it's killing me. <laughs> so I have just a couple days left. So I was out today. I've gotten into saddle hunting lately, and so you know, uh, put put a stand up in a new spot and had a couple of does come by um, as I was trimming some shooting lanes. Uh, they didn't they didn't end up spotting me, but uh, they left, and I finished Truman shooting lanes and didn't see a dang thing after that, so just I've been outside enjoying the enjoying the woods.
2: Tell me what saddle hunting means i'm I'm a westerner, I don't know that term
1: oh sure um so and this is I've just gotten into it this year instead of climbing a tree and then standing on a large metal platform that you can kind of move around in a little bit. Um, you are, you actually sit in basically a harness. It should be called harness hunting. Honestly, I don't know why they call it saddle hunting, but you wear a harness kind of like a tree climbing or a rock climbing harness similar to that. And then you're connected to the tree with a rope and you just use that to hold you up there. So you can kind of swing around the tree, um, and you can sit or you can stand. Um, it gives you a lot more maneuverability and a lot more mobility because then all you have to carry, uh, is whatever the system is that you use to climb the tree. You don't have to carry on a big, heavy uh, tree stand. So you can, you can set up and tear down and, in you know, 15 minutes, you're in and out of the tree, move to the next tree. No big deal.
2: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah. It's cool. It's fun. I, I, I hadn't done it before. Um, and uh, look, I get bored easily. <laughs> and so being able to move around when I'm hunting, um, switch a location, Um, being able to be mobile. Even if I'm, even if I'm at the same place all day, it's a little bit easier to be at a different place the next time I'm out. You know, it might be a, might be a tree 30 yards uh, from where I am, but that's one of the great things I think about being outdoors is even you move 30 yards on a piece of property on a piece of the land. And all of a sudden you're looking at things you haven't seen before and noticing parts of the parts of the land that you haven't noticed before so even small changes like that can be For a sure. lot of fun
2: well good that sounds fun uh i always we, we talk usually about what i do outside too i've not done very much lately mm-hmm. interestingly enough because you know i have an iowan on here there's about i think 12 white tailed deer in all of colorado where i
1: you live you get the <laughs> and, movies out there don't you
2: yeah and and we tried this weird late season whitetail tag this year it goes kind of up against the mountains in the southern front range of the state with my son and we didn't see a a damn whitetail in the whole time we went out (laughs) three or four times we saw 500 mule deer we saw elk we just did not see any whitetail so that's what we've been doing a little bit over the over the break there and yeah you know That sounds like
1: my, uh, one of the things I'd like to do is get out to, uh, Colorado and just do an over the counter elk tag. Uh, I actually got to New New Mexico two years ago for elk and had the time of my life. Um, I think I, I definitely, I mean, I, we, we went 10 miles a day every day and I think I was there for seven days of hunting. And it gave me enough experience, it's the only elk hunt I've done, but it gave me enough experience that I would feel, you know, like I'd have at least a snowball's chance in hell if I was doing it just over the counter in Colorado by myself next time. Um, sure. You can tell me if I'm wrong about that. It's okay.
2: <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, being patient and observing the woods, I think you'd you'd have a good chance. Come on out. We'll, we'll get together and do that someday.
1: Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Elk is a whole, that's the only time um, I've hunted something outside of Iowa and it was it's a, it's a oh, wow.
2: Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background and, and who you are and how you, how you got in and how, to hunting and fishing and growing up and so on. Just, just tell me a little bit about sure. who you are, where you came from and how you got into it.
1: Yeah. I grew up in Northeast Iowa, a little town called Decora, which actually, um, some of the best trout fishing in the Midwest is, is right around there. It's in the Driftless area. Yeah. Um, good. so highly recommend, uh, folks check that out if they like trout. Um, but grew up up there. My dad also grew up in the same town. His dad and mom grew up just 10 miles outside of town in another little town called Austin. So deep family roots in Northeast Iowa. And I would just with my dad, you know, grow up, uh, hunting, mostly fishing. He liked fishing a lot more, uh, but do some hunting a lot of fishing, you know, plinking with BB guns and later plinking with 22s. Um, Just uh, kind of doing everything outside that you can do outside. And to me, being outdoors is, is, you know, something that's special to my family, makes me think of the good times I've shared with my dad. Um, In addition to, you know, giving me an ability to connect to nature and connect to the natural world. So um, it's always something I've enjoyed.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, so let's jump in a little bit about Iowa too. I mean, Iowa is a unique place. I think politically, I think in the Midwest, I think you touched on a couple of things, you know, you got a lot of hunters there. You got a really good informed population that seems to the Iowa caucus I've never quite understood you know, the, the special importance that seems to take on every year. Sure. Just unpack that for people a little for me, if you would just, you know, tell people what, what that's about, what makes Iowa unique in your eyes.
1: You know, the, the reason I think that Iowa, um, that Iowa wins, I should say, uh, do a good job going first is there's a real expectation of retail politics in Iowa. Meaning you got to meet the person who's running for the office um, yeah, I had a chance to talk to all the candidates uh, in 2020 because I got elected to my job in 2018. And so they started coming calling pretty soon after that. And I said to them, you know, you should expect to show up in a town of 2,000 people, have five people come out to the event that you're at, sit there and talk with all five of them for an entire hour, learn that one of them is your second cousin.
2: <laughs> and you're talking... And you're talking all the way up to presidential politics here, oh, too. Yeah. You're not. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, at the end of that hour, when you've just, as, as a U.S. Senator or governor from some other state, while you're running for president of the United States of America, at the end of that hour uh, where you've made them cry and discovered your relatives, you know, when you ask them to commit to caucus for you, they'll tell you, well, I got to see all the other candidates first. I mean, people just, <laughs> they really take it seriously. They they want to, They 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 don't want to make a commitment before they feel certain that it's the right commitment to make. They ask good questions. Um, There's a reporter, uh, I think, uh, Reed Wilson um, from, I don't know, some entity out in DC who gets to travel all around the country during presidential campaigns. And I remember he said, you know, I've done a bunch of events in New Hampshire, a bunch of events in Iowa. The questions that you get from Iowans are just different. They're like another level. In terms of the, the the seriousness and the difficulty for for candidates to be able to handle them.
2: Wow, that's I I wish everyone was as discerning with their choice. Um, seems like sometimes yeah. people do you know single issue voters and and different things like that where they yeah. maybe it's not as discerning as it should be. No, and then
1: it's something we have to get away from. I mean, we 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 find ourselves so divided and. Uh, There's a real inability, I think, for a lot of people to consider someone who um, who might not wear the same color shirt, you know, Um, or who even in their own party just doesn't have a stance on one particular issue that they like. And it's fine to be passionate, but um, I would I'd love to see a little bit more reason introduced into our politics.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's good to think about. And, you know, I know in, in thinking about talking with you and, and learning about you a bit, you know, you're, you're really all about kind of civics and transparency and, and really kind of an open style
1: of governance. Yeah. T-
2: talk about that a little.
1: Well, look, uh, <laughs> it always sticks with me. The the story about the the lady who approached Benjamin Franklin, after the Constitutional Convention, and she said, well, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. You know, self-governance, the idea that we don't have a king telling us all what to do, the idea here is that we govern ourselves, which means you, you and me, Aaron and Rob, need to be able to sit down and even though we disagree, come to some form of an agreement where we can both say, well, you know what, I'm not getting everything I want, neither are you, we have reached an agreement and we will abide by that agreement if we're going to govern ourselves, we have to be willing to do that. And it doesn't, I don't think it just means socially uh, as a society. I think it means ourself. You know, we have to, I, I personally, I have to govern me. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. and we can all, we, we all get passionate. We all get excited about things. We have to govern ourselves. Literally, you know, we have to be willing to uh, calm ourselves down. We have to be willing to uh, express um, um, the, the fact that we've made mistakes. You know, we have to be willing to say, I was wrong about this. Uh, all of these things are demanding. Uh, the, 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 the founding fathers really cared a lot about character. Um, great book by Gordon Wood, um, who was, I, I had the good fortune to take a class from him in college. It's called Revolutionary Characters. And he actually does a bunch of sketches of our founding fathers and the ways in which they were concerned about personal character. And I just I really think that all that stuff is important because at the end of the day, we can antagonize the idea of government all we want. We can we can say the government this, the government that. Well, it's our government, and so at the end of the day, we are responsible for it. And I and I really think that if we want to take that seriously, elected officials have a real responsibility to lead and to help people understand what's going on and to help them understand why the decisions that are getting made are getting made. So to me, you know, it's a good idea. I think I, I go on Facebook Live every Tuesday at 4.45 p.m. Anyone who's interested, you know, I realize most of your listeners probably aren't in Iowa, but any 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 uh, social media website is, you can find me at robsandia. And I just talk about what I did in the job that week. Uh, Cause most people don't have a real great understanding of what the state auditor does. And so I, I tell them what I did in the job that week. I answer their questions. And I think that that's a good thing to be doing.
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, we'll talk about what you think we need to kind of bring some normalcy back into politics. And, you know, I've been promoting this concept of thinking of our country as a big community, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't go and, and do some of the things we see people doing to their neighbor, uh, so, you know, if, if that was someone in your community or, you know, and I mean community, you know, someone fairly close to you, you know, what, what do we need to do to get out of these separate camps and and, yeah. and kind of start thinking of things that, that help our country as a whole? Yeah,
1: uh, so one thing I did when I was in college is I actually put together a class on conservative thought. I, I happen to be a Democrat. Um, I was a registered independent when I first registered to vote, but I put together a class on conservative thought because I didn't think that I was getting enough exposure to it. And I recruited conservative students to take the class with me um, because I wanted to get a better understanding of, of, of what their ideas were. And it was a great experience. And, you know, I really think that um, we have a long way to go into doing that. We have to start approaching people as though they're actual human beings with value and that thinking differently um, from each other doesn't mean that we are better or worse people. In most circumstances, there are some things that are beyond the pale. Um, but for the most part, a disagreement can be a disagreement. I also really think that leaders have to lead. And part of leading people is, is telling the truth. And we're at a point right now where we need a lot more people uh, <clears throat> telling the truth and talking about difficult issues, and trying to get away from the idea that, you know, that your that your party is what matters. Um, George Washington's farewell address, his it, it, when when he finished his second term of, pre, of the presidency. Two main concerns he had: foreign influence over our government, and then factions, parties. I mean, this guy was so clear in saying one of the worst things that could happen to this republic is to have it turn into these um unchanging calcified groups of people um that just sort of line up on opposite sides and turn it into a sport or or uh, a war instead of politics where you try to approach an idea and consider ideas as opposed to just looking at it as a team-based approach Um, we got a lot of work to do
2: yeah, those are those are interesting words to hear right now that you just mentioned there. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about kind of hunting and angling and the sporting community. And and you know, have you seen the the hunting and fishing world help kind of bridge some of those partisan divides? And and do you have ideas about
1: that and how they could? You know, I think. To me, one of the really wonderful things is if you get a chance to go hunting with people, you just get to know them a little bit better. And it's a bonding experience. Um, you know, sports, religion, politics, those tend to be bonding experiences. I think that hunting and fishing tends to be a bonding experience too. I mean, you get you get out with someone there and, and you're communing with nature. And if you're communing with nature together, then you're communing with each other too. And the experience that you share is something that you you know can't be taken away by future disagreements, and I've I've gone and I hope to do it more. I've gone hunting, trying to think of I've gone fishing too, with folks that I just generally disagree with and might not know very well. But like I said, you know, you talk about it as a community. I so said we need to approach uh, each other as as people where it's okay to disagree when you're doing something with somebody like that. I tend to think that you just sort of realize that they're like you, you know. Oh, you, uh, huh? You yeah, do the same things that I do common. when I'm hunting. You do the same things that I do when I'm fishing. Oh, you, you, uh, you tie your tie that way. Well, that's interesting. I don't do it that way. That's a great idea. Huh? I learned something from you. I really appreciate that. You know, just some ability to have some insight into someone and see them as a human being and not as um, a member of a different team. Um, is just really crucial for us to be able to get to a point where we can start be fo- start focusing on on problems instead of uh, instead of partisanship.
2: Yeah, it's amazing how much we repeat the mistake of letting, you know, the five percent disagreement of, and the other 95 percent yeah. that we do agree on, but the five yeah. percent defines everything.
1: You know, um, Aaron, I, I I ask people this all the time. <clears throat> Imagine. I'm married. We got two little kids. For everybody listening out there, I had to apologize to Aaron because we got this thing started late. Um, I was handling bedtimes tonight. Um, So we got two little kids. Imagine, I I cannot imagine what my life would be like if every morning when I woke up and every evening when I came home from work and every night after the kids went to bed, I went immediately to the things that I disagreed with my wife about. Holy crap. Wouldn't that be brutal? <laughs>
2: yeah. That'd be problems fast. Oh my
1: God. Oh my goodness I can't, I can't imagine how much pain and discomfort and just tension there would be in my life. And yet politically, uh, we tend to just start shouting the parties tend to start shouting at each other about the stuff that we know we disagree on, you know? Um, abortion rights, um, you know, gay rights, uh, what to do about healthcare. We just start screaming at each other instead of saying, okay, hold on a second. We disagree on that. Um, you hold power in this piece of the legislative area. I hold it over here. Maybe what we should do is talk about the things that we agree on and actually fix those problems. And then maybe, maybe through that experience, we can build enough of a rapport where maybe we'll trust each other to fix something else too. But you, you, we, we have to go to the things that we agree on, not the things we disagree on. I just, I can't imagine doing that if it was you in your personal life. And, and yet that seems to be how we go about life in the public sphere. Bad idea.
2: Sure. So what do you think, you know, some big ideas are that could, you know, bring both parties together to kind of help conserve you know our sporting traditions i we, we we see kind of less hunters every year mm-hmm. you know this year was an anomaly i think with covid obviously but yeah uh w- you know what what are the things that parties can work on together that kind of help you know reinforce some of those values
1: yeah i i think it's you know it was really amazing to see the uptake in hunters um and, and in fishing around the country this year i i really hope that there's there's going to be some people Having picked it up this year, say, hey, you know, that was a terrible year. That pandemic was really difficult. But one good thing that came out of it for me is I discovered that I really love, you know, trout fishing. I really love deer hunting. I tell you, Aaron, I've been wanting to do more turkey hunting for a while. This is the fu- the year that I finally uh, put in a decent chunk of time and got my first bird. And it was a blast. Nice. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Uh, I did uh, shotgun season in Iowa and the woods were just full of gobblers at the crack of dawn. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing that. But if we're going to preserve that stuff um, in terms of our politics, one of the things that we got to do is just be willing to talk more about how it is a uh, bipartisan issue. There seems to be uh, sort of a partisan divide where one party kind of wants to own those issues, um, and, and, put themselves out front at it. But I, I, talk a lot about the fact that I like to bow hunt and I like to hunt and fish, uh, cause it's a big piece of who I am. It's a huge, huge way that I spend my free time. Um, and I think, you know, let me give you an example, a previous governor in Iowa, um, would have the governor's, uh, I think it was a governor's pheasant hunt. Maybe a governor's deer hunt, but I'm not sure. But anyways, there'd be an annual pheasant hunt, and it would be bipartisan invitations. Current governor only invites people of her party. Um, it's a missed opportunity. You know, we could be out there together, b- building a rapport, building relationships, and we're not doing it. Um, but we have to look at these things as, as an opportunity to bond, as opposed to something to fight about.
2: Yeah. Great point. Um, you know, we talk a lot about access and opportunity and public lands. Talk a little bit about, you know, being in Iowa a state that I'm not sure the percentage, but I know it's pretty low of, Tiny. of, of federal and, and, and even any public lands. Yeah. How, how do, how does Iowa work to, to help create that opportunity? Because I'm sure, you know, most hunters or, or people trying to get into hunting one of the number one, reasons they list for, for not being able to do that is, is access, right? No place to go. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about that.
1: No, it's a huge, uh, issue in Iowa. We are, I think, I want to say 45th, we might be 48th, but we are way down at the bottom in terms of public land. Um, and a huge piece of that is that agriculture is, uh, at the heart of Iowa. Uh, it uh, it has been for a long time. It will be probably forever because we've been blessed with a massive amount of the world's grade A farmland. Uh, I think it might be 25 percent. That might be yeah. a statistic. Um, and so we have a huge amount of agriculture here um, because we can grow. We can grow food to feed um, people all over the world. But I don't but I don't think that it's fair to the people who work in agriculture, who support agriculture, who, who, who share our communities here, um, for them to not have opportunities for them to enjoy uh, the outdoors. And so I think it's good to, good for the state to make sure that we have enough public land where people are able to actually get access and go enjoy the outdoors as well. Um, and that includes, you know, wetlands, if you're doing uh, um, duck hunting you know, you want it. you want to be able to do some upland bird hunting. We've got good pheasant hunting in Iowa, and then obviously deer and Turkey as well, as well as fishing. We, sure. so ha- having more public land in Iowa is one idea. We also have a program and I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, um, where the state works to get people essentially signed up to allow deer hunting on their property. Um, and so, instead of having public land, it's like a—it's almost like a, a, a clearinghouse for private land that's willing to take hunters. And that's another another good yeah. way to do it because then at least, even if you don't have it uh, publicly accessible, uh, you're making sure that somebody's got access to land. So there's things that we can do to, to to fix that problem. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that hunting and fishing is a part of who we are as humans. I mean, this goes back way, way before recorded history. People um, hunt and gather to survive, and to not have the opportunity to do that is just seems unjust to me. I, I would, I mean, obviously, there's people who choose a life where they live in a big city. But if you're living in Iowa, you're probably living here because you like being out and around nature, at least to some degree. And you ought to have the ability uh, to do what all of our previous generations did one way or another. And so I think that's something that we do need to we do need to protect.
2: Good, yeah. I, I like to say that uh, one of the things I love about hunting and fishing is that it connects you to every human basically that's ever walked the planet until the last handful of years where people have decided maybe they didn't want to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, that's right. It really, and it really has been just the last handful of years and I have no problem with people. I mean, if you personally don't want to, you know, hunt fish, you don't, you want to be vegan or vegetarian, whatever, that's fine, but it means a lot to me. And I do, I think about that same thing, Aaron, when I'm out there and I'm sitting in a tree granted, you know, um, a thousand years ago, they, they weren't wearing camouflage clothing. Uh, they weren't shooting a compound bow. But you are still doing the same thing that millions of years of generations of humans did. You're sitting out there in nature, in the elements, being a piece of nature. And that's the thing to me that I think is really fascinating about hunting and fishing. You know, a lot of people who don't, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this. A lot of people who don't do it think that hunting is about being macho and saying, you know, oh, I'm so much better than this animal, which in a way, like there is a challenge. And and to me, you know, being able to shoot a big buck is like, yeah, you know, that buck didn't get big by being stupid. So you, you, you got you pulled one over on a, on a smart guy there. But when I'm hunting. It's very humbling to take an animal's life because what I'm doing is I'm saying that I am a piece of the food chain and that I am dependent upon this animal for sustenance. And it gets you connected to that sense of humility and that sense of um, need in a way that, you know, getting uh sliced ham from the grocer doesn't.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I mean, I think, Even one of the reasons hunting sometimes gets a bad rap is because, right, most of what gets the publicity is the worst behaviors. Yeah. Right. And, and really, if you think about being a really good ethical hunter, you're probably going to be someone who's quiet and, you know, not, not jumping up and down about what you did. I mean, everybody loves to come home and say, you know, here's what I got. And I think it is something to celebrate, you know, to be able to bring that, that food home and so on. But you know some of the stuff that that we see out there is is unfortunately the the worst examples. Yeah, and and that kind of has has defined, you know, I'll say hunting in air quotes too because some of it I wouldn't consider hunting because to me hunting means, it's the whole ethical pursuit. Amen. You know, some of that stuff isn't really representing hunting; it's in some other categories, um, and it's too bad when we see that because it, it it gives people a bad impression of one of the most beautiful, amazing things. Yeah. Uh, that we can still connect to yeah. um, as humans. So.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, like hunting and killing are not the same thing. Uh, they are related, but they are different. Um, and I, I actually started doing something recently. I've only done it a few times, but this is a good reminder. I've started doing on Twitter, hashtag Twitter goes hunting. <laughs> because I see on Twitter so many people who who don't. And, you know, that's fine. They may be, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't, I can't, I couldn't tell you if I was uh, raised in a family where my dad or my mom didn't hunt or fish, if I would be hunting and fishing right now. But there are a ton of people out there who just, who don't have any frame of reference to really understand it, who don't really know people who hunt or, or who fish. And so I've been, so I've been doing this hashtag occasionally when I'm out hunting, just with a tweet that might, give them a little bit, hopefully of insight into the mindset of most hunters, right? There are a lot of people out there who, who want to beat their chest and they're just, uh, just really interested in it as sort of like a dominance thing, but most hunters, um, that are in the Facebook groups that I'm in that, that I know personally, it's much more than that. Again, yeah. it's really amazing to catch a huge fish. It's it's a, a a hell of a rush and a sense of accomplishment to take a big buck. But that isn't the only reason you're out there, and in fact, mo- I think that most of us, when we find ourselves pushing ourselves too hard to do that, tend to kind of take a look at ourselves and say, "Why am I doing this?" I mean, that's not what this is that's about. kind of bad.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I I appreciate your perspective there. Talk talk to me in general. What, you know, what do you think that the the biggest barrier is for getting you know new people into hunting and, and and fishing and getting out there in Iowa specifically? I mean, I know that's where you have the most. You can speak on this broadly, but you know, in Iowa, what are you guys seeing?
1: Um, you know, I think most people. I think the biggest barrier is just that first time, I mean, it's it's one thing to, you know, tweet about it and sort of say Twitter goes hunting. You know, okay, fine. It, I'm I'm doing that because it's easy for me to do and it could reach a lot of people potentially. But to get someone out in the field and to to put a gun or a bow in their hands and really sort of um, help them see what is it what it is you're doing when you're out there. I think it gives them a, just a whole different level of understanding and appreciation for what it might be as you explain the process to them and that sort of thing. You know, actually, going back to the caucuses, there were a ton of people. Um, there were s- staff, you know, people who worked on campaigns. There were reporters from national news outlets. Like I, I took a bunch of people out hunting with me. Um, we do, there's an urban bow hunting season in Des Moines, and I have. Uh, one piece of property that I was hunting where I had it set up. I had two tree stands. Um, And so we just, we'd climb up and same tree, um, whoever my guest was would be in one stand and I'd be in the other stand right next to it. And, you know, through the process of getting ready and kind of explaining them how to prepare for the day and then sort of um, being up there and kind of whispering to them about what I was doing. I think most of those folks would tell you they just, they really have kind of a different perspective on what it is compared to what they thought prior to them that actually got into the field. I think getting people into the field is the single biggest thing you can do uh, to teach them and to help them get an appreciation for it and build an interest in it.
2: Yeah. You probably touched on one of the main things that is a casualty of what we were just talking about. You know, the perception of hunting is based on, you know, sometimes the wrong things. And then, yeah. and then that's what people think it is. And then they go do it. And then, well, wait, that's not at all what I was yeah. thinking. It's It's pretty cool. I mean, I've, I have found a lot of people say, wow, it's so much more fun and so much more interesting right. and so much, you know, neater than I thought it was going to be. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of people who, who, who don't understand that most of the time when you go bow hunting, you come home empty handed. Or that, or that you know uh, it, uh, one way to describe it i think is kind of like saying you know oh well did you really play a game of baseball if you didn't hit a grand slam it's like i'm not i'm i'm not here just for grand slams baseball is so much more than a grand slam like sure it's kind of like the ultimate achievement uh as a hitter in baseball but if that's all i was here for i wouldn't really care much about hunting um and and it's the same kind of thing like people are like oh you came back empty handed so it wasn't any good i was like no it's great I got to be outside for four hours. Uh, I watched, you know, a fox kit uh, chasing after his mom. I don't know, you know, whatever. It's just, it's good to be out there, and it's so much more than than just taking an animal.
2: Yeah, I've done a hell of a lot more walking around with guns and rods than I have actually <laughs> yes. harvesting something and, yes. and bringing it home. So, yep. I mean, it's it's got to be a hundred to one, right? I mean, it, it, the. Oh, the yeah. time you- field to, to the actual bringing something home is pretty pretty big discrepancy yeah i think that's
1: i think that's right are you a, um, are you a colorado native aaron
2: uh wyoming native but yeah intermountain westerner my okay. whole life
1: yeah okay what what's your favorite thing to hunt for out there elk for sure yeah uh, man is... i tell you when they're bugling <laughs> yeah it's something else It really is. I mean, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's funny, too, because when I was out in New Mexico, they kept saying, oh, I heard this guy screaming. And probably four days for the first four days of hunting, I was like, why do they call it screaming? I mean, it doesn't sound like screaming. But then we got one who was real, real worked up and he was close and it was like screaming. I mean, I'm hearing him bugle and I can't see him, but I can almost hear the veins popping out in his in his throat. I mean, it was just insane.
2: Yeah, and uh, listeners to this podcast, know I did a lot of vicarious living through my son this year. He's fifteen. Tried mm-hmm. for his first elk this year. We spent about twelve days out, uh-huh. and uh, he did not harvest. Unfortunately, he had about four opportunities, took one shot and missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but man, I'll never. I wouldn't trade those those twelve days for anything. You know, this this year with COVID and yeah. we got to do it. Probably twice to three times as much, you know, we might've gotten three, four days out in a typical year when he had school things and I was running around for work and everything. So they were awesome. And man, he is itching now. He, he he has got the bug. So I'm really happy with that.
1: That's great. Yeah. And and, then to your point too, where you say, you know, he had four opportunities and he took one shot, uh, you know, it's ethics I was actually just reading a story about a gal uh, that lives in Ankeny here in Iowa who shot a 200 plus inch buck and she let it pass the first time because the shot that it presented, she didn't feel comfortable with. And when I was out in New Mexico for elk, uh, I can count one, two, three, at least opportunities where I could have taken a shot. Where I didn't. And it was either because the shot was a low percentage shot or um or uh, it was a it was a small um bull where I was just like, you know, if I shoot this bull this year, he was like a one by five, half broken off and the other half small. You knew he was twelve yards away, just standing there broadside. But it's like if I if I shoot this bull, that's a big bull that someone's not gonna get to shoot some some sometime down the line. And just having that experience too, but knowing that at the end of the day, again, boy, Aaron, you want to bring it full circle. Talk about self-governance. I'm standing there full, full draw. This is the very last day. It is the afternoon. I'm not kidding you. And me and the guy that I'm with had been chasing one bull that we had seen, and he was nice. And all of a sudden, another bull started bugling at us. And so he bugled once more, and this new bull started coming in. Right. So I get I get behind some brush and it's coming up the hill, start to hear it breathing and uh, comes out from behind the brush. And it's this little guy. And, you know, the odds at that point of me having another opportunity at a bigger buck are very, very slim. And yet at the same time, I know there's that other one that we had seen that was still responding to our bugles. So I had a little bit of hope. But at the end of the day, the guy that's in front of me, is like a, you know, just a little guy. Self-governance. I'm at full draw. He is, he is, this is a, this is a dead on shot. And at the end of the day, I didn't take him because to me, you know, shooting a a tiny little bull like that, all that means is someone else doesn't get to shoot a bigger one later. Cause it's, it's it, on the one hand it was, it would have been my first and I can appreciate that argument too, where, you know, if you want to, if you want to get one, getting your first is a big deal regardless. I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't quibble with that much, but on the other hand, to me, you know, I went out there and I said, uh, there's a certain um, size that I want to shoot because that, if you're able to do that, it, it, it's a bit of a more of an achievement and that's what I was hoping to do. And even though it was my last day, it still didn't uh, hit the release self-governance. We got to be able to keep ourselves from doing things that we might feel tempted to do when they're yeah, not going really to do in the first place.
2: Yeah. I don't recall who the quote is, but uh I, the quote is something like, you know, being ethical is doing the right thing. Even when no one's looking right. Yes. You know, and, yes. and hunters are, acutely aware of that right because you have a lot of times where you're out there by yourself and it's all yes. up to you right it, it it really is interesting to think about through a kid's eyes too when you've got a kid out there really showing them
1: that yes right? it is um you there's know, a good Aldo Leopold quote I don't know if that's his but it's something to that effect
2: I think it is I think it is his I mean I've got so many Aldo Leopold quotes rattling around in the back of my head I'm pretty sure it is his. <laughs> I just couldn't cite it so yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about some Iowa stuff. I know you've been involved with the Iowa deer exchange program and some mm-hmm. hunters for the hungry work. T- tell us a little about, about what that looks like in uh in Iowa.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, look, there's, there's uh, folks in this state, as there are in every other state um, that are working hard um, and, and who are struggling to uh, put food on the table for their family. And, a program that we have here is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, if you as a hunter donate the, I don't know if it's just deer, but if you donate the game um, that you uh, harvested to a food bank, you can bring it into a meat locker. we got a lot of little meat lockers all over the state. Um, you can bring in a meat locker, say I want to donate this to the HUSH program and you don't have to pay anything. They just take in the deer um, they process it, and they take all that venison and they bring it to a local food bank, and the state, um, I think, covers their cost. Maybe gives them a small, um, small payment to make it worth their worth their while, but definitely covers their cost. So it's a good it's a good program because it it keeps people hunting right who who might otherwise you know my wife doesn't particularly care for venison so. I certainly shoot a lot more uh, deer every year than what we eat. Uh, we eat very little, really, um, but it keeps people hunting. It keeps people fed, and at the end of the day, um, for some of those meat lockers, it keeps them busy too. So uh, it's a good program. It's just a good way to good way to be focused on the community there and, and be able to be able to help others through the act of hunting.
2: So is it one and the same, the Hunters for the Hungry and the Deer Exchange, or how, how does that shake
1: out? Um, I honestly don't know. The program I've always participated in is HUSH, which I think is Hunters United Stopping Hunger. Um, and okay. well, There's in- Hunters for the Hungry
2: I I, there. across the country. Yeah, I, I know it is Hunters for the Hungry here in Colorado, some other places. Um, I, I, we'll try to wrap up here soon, Rob. I know you you need to roll there in Iowa. We're starting to get late. Uh, but <laughs> w- what about any conservation issues in Iowa that you're following or, or any even national issues that you think you know sportsmen and women should be thinking about? Um,
1: you know, one thing that's been frustrating in Iowa has been our uh, recreational trust fund. So we had a, a ballot um, – it's not really a ballot initiative because we don't truly have that process in Iowa. But we had a ballot item um, that was on the on the ballot um, quite some time ago to just add a small amount uh, to our sales tax in the state, and to have that money go towards a recreational trust, uh, supposed to prov- help provide for clean water, um, you know, good land for recreational use, that sort of thing. Just um, and and so you had voters vote pretty overwhelmingly i'm going to say over 60 percent in in favor of creating it but then they've never funded it which is to me um extremely frustrating because at the end of the day um politics is supposed to be about serving the will of the people right you're we're supposed to be um doing what people want and sometimes you know you might be in a position where you need to explain to people hey hold on a second um that's not true i I understand why you might want that but let me explain something to you um but this isn't that this is a ballot question where people were asked hey do you want to create uh this trust fund so that we can improve recreational and outdoor opportunities in iowa and they said yeah we do that's that and so to me, the fact that uh, it hasn't been funded uh, in Iowa is really frustrating and something I think would, uh, if they did, it would really expand outdoor opportunities for, for Iowans and for people who wanted to come visit our state and bring their dollars here too. So I'd, I'd really like to see that um, get taken care of here.
2: Good. I appreciate that. Um... Well, I mean, to try to let you off the hook here and get you out here, I'll, I'll ask you one final question. And, uh, you know, you've been in, in public office and in, in the public service for a while now. What do you think your most trying moment or biggest fail is that you would share with folks and, 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 and tell us, you know, how, how you dealt with it. I always like to take thinkers like you and, and get some advice about dealing with things that didn't go so well. Sure.
1: Um, you know, It comes down to doing the right thing, Um, and what's really important when we fail or when we screw up, even if we made the right decision with the information we had at the time, is to when we realize it's a mistake, take that as an opportunity to say, hey, this is a choice. I can choose to do the right thing. When I was assistant attorney general, I prosecuted a bunch of cases related to the Iowa film office tax credit scandal. A bunch of people who made movies in Iowa who inflated their invoices uh, to get more back in tax credits than what they were really owed. And one of them was this guy from California who'd made a bunch of movies that a lot of folks would, would have heard of. And um, he came here and made one and we investigated his, his movie making and his receipts you yeah, I, I was going through the documentation, everything. And it looked like he had inflated his expenses. It seemed pretty clear. And so we called him up and asked him to, if he had any explanation or wanted to, wanted to help us understand it. And he had a few choice letter words and uh, four, choice four letter words. And that was about it. <laughs> so typically, you know, when you, when you have a good case put together on, on the white collar side, on the, uh, on the financial side, and you call somebody up, and they and they don't want to offer you any helpful information to help you understand why they didn't commit a crime. Pretty good indicator that they don't have any helpful information to offer you. And so I, um, I said we need to indict this guy. You know, here's the case. All this stuff is wrong. And he, we gave him an opportunity to explain it, and he didn't have anything to offer. And so I indicted him. Um, after that, he came to Iowa. Uh, sat down with me for two or three days, uh, one-on-one, probably had an, and then I spent uh, probably another two or three days taking all the information he had given me and verifying it. And at the end of that whole time, what I was left with was a lot of new evidence, new documentation, new information that told me that this guy is, Clearly a terrible bookkeeper, uh, clearly a a mess of a businessman, uh, but also not someone that I think committed fraud or at the least uh, not somebody who, where I could prove a case of, of fraud. And so I'm at a moment here where when I indicted this guy, I did it and think it was the right decision. And then I came upon new information later. That uh, said it wasn't. Now, we hear stories a lot of times about prosecutors who aren't willing to walk away from a case, who, um, you know, just jack the charges up in order to, you know, squeak a plea out of somebody just so they can get their pound of flesh. Um, And I thought about that, um, and I thought about what to do when I came to this realization and said, you know what, I shouldn't have indicted him. Now that I know this, I, you know, I don't think it was a mistake at the time. I did everything I could do, but now I have more information and that was the wrong choice. And so I just dropped the charges entirely. Just dropped the charges, walked away from the case. Because when you don't have it, you know, you need to just be willing to do that. And so, it, you know, on the one hand, it's making a mistake. But I think when we make mistakes, those mistakes also give us the opportunity to do the right thing by acknowledging them, which is a tough thing to do. Um, but if we can do it, I think um, you know people appreciate integrity. I hope they do anyways. <laughs>
2: I think it's still a pretty uh, important value. so, yeah, well, appreciate that story, Rob. And do you want to get leave us with any parting shots before I let you go here?
1: Boy, you know i hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about that. I guess for anyone who's listening out there, just we're in a, in, for, for anyone, you know, look, we are, we are recording this on, what is it? It's Wednesday. So we just had all the mess at the U S Capitol today. You yep. know, please, please, um, you know, get your news from lots of different news sources, question what you hear. Um, try to think critically about what's going on in the world. And, when you approach people online, you know, try to imagine the way in which they wrote those words where they didn't mean to be nasty. Can you interpret a statement in a way that maybe isn't supposed to be an insult or isn't supposed to be sarcastic? We, yeah. we have a lot of work to do to get to the point where, um, and it's a challenge for me every day, just like it is for everybody else. We got a lot of work to do to get to the point where we are functioning well and solving problems um, in this country, but it's up to all of us to help change change our culture in a direction to get there and doing those things will help us get there.
2: Well, good. Wise words. Uh, I will let you go. I appreciate you jumping on, especially tough day today. Uh, we've been trying to make this work for a while and finally did. So appreciate you jumping on and keep doing all the good work you're doing.
1: Thanks, Aaron. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye.
2: We are...